she she has a bonnet. Eric wants bonnet. Camille gives bonnet to Eric. Pierre tries to get bonnet back. Eric does not want uh, bonnet to be stolen. <laughs> Miracle says bonnet replace. Camille <laughs> thinks he's sus. Won't give him the address. Cinematic fantastic. Atu, Barada, Nikto. Show you who I am and what I am. Buy a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes, as we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. So hello, and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Fantastic. Hi! Uh, it's ep- This should be episode 14. 14. And today we're doing yet another short story like we did the last episode. It's called Murders in the Rue Morgue. It's uh, loosely based off of Edgar Allan Poe's short story. And when we say loosely, we mean it only carries over maybe a small handful of, of, of facts from the, uh, from the short story, as far as I can tell. It came out in 1932, but it was planned for a good little bit, at least a year or more before that, um, for, di- you know, for different reasons. So, this is yet another uh, Bela Lugosi picture uh, made by Universal this time. We're finally returning to the good old Universal movies. Yeah, and and I, I think all the all the different you know production companies have something really good to do. And all the movies we've done, I've liked them for at least one reason. I mean, you might say it's like you know maybe maybe I'm just trying to be nice, you know, devil's advocate or something. But right, right. Well. I mean, an- another thing that's impressive is that this is the same year. We've been stuck on the same year. So do realize that through all these movies, that there has been so much variation in, like, quality. I mean, it's kind yeah. of like we've been building up in quality. Um, I think so. As we've been I going. think so. Yeah. And uh, that's really interesting, especially in one-year setting. And these might be in uh, out of order in terms of months. Most definitely, probably so. So Yeah, I'm de- I, you know, when I created the, the list, or at least suggested the list, I had no idea which ones came first and didn't. I just kind of chose them based upon the year and what Wikipedia had said uh, was coming, you know, what order they came out. So if I was a little bit wrong in that, I mean, we're not, you know, a slave to that at all. We're kind of doing what we feel and do what we want to do. And it's a nice shake-up and Instead of, you know, going absolutely chronologically, like those really specific OCD people, whatevers. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's got a little bit of OCD about something. It just depends upon what, what level you've got. Is it really crippling or not? In this case, I have OCD about the movie we're to talk about. So let's talk about the movie. <laughs> wow. Okay, so first thing that I would say is that we have a movie where a dark figure named Eric kidnaps uh, a woman and takes her across rooftops. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's Phantom of the Opera. Okay, no. No, that's not um, Phantom of the Opera. It's <laughs> Der Golem. 
Well, oh no, yeah. You forgot. I forgot. There have been multiple villains even before that. It doesn't matter if you carried on a roof. It's just that they carried a. Oh, I'm on, sorry. I'm on, sorry. On their shoulders at all. Okay, so a uh, a man at he's a, turned into Santa. <laughs> a man at a carnival uh, has a uh, a hu- a human type or humanoid type creature that he is showing. And this dark humanoid type creature, as a sideshow, uh, goes and kidnaps a woman and takes her across a roof. Wait a minute, that's Dr. Caligar. So there's a lot of fam- <laughs> thing. Is, why are you saying? Uh, why Why are you generalizing? It's 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 okay. an ape, guys. It's an ape. Sorry it's to spoil ape. the story. It's kind of on the poster though, Bo, but it's, it's re- an ape. Returning Returning to monkey. Again. Yes, but why are you generalizing that? I don't know. I it, thought it's a I, monkey. It's an ape. <laughs> just say it's a monkey. Say, okay. it, say it's an ape. Just say it's, it's an, an ape. ape. It's a monkey. Are you happy? Okay. Now, I was just, I don't know. I was thinking about what I was going to say for the podcast, and I was thinking, wait a minute. The, the monkey slash ape's na- name is Eric. So was the Phantom of the Opera. And then this, because I was thinking we're back in France again. Uh, so I was thinking, oh, we're in France again. Um, what are some other similarities to some other things we've done? So I know I'm overgeneralizing, but I really did see some similarities to some things we've done before. You know, uh, a a mad doctor talking about evolution. Hmm. That's like Dr. Moreau. And this guy's name is Dr. Miracle. It's so close. No, I'm kidding. This is, this is very, it's very, you know, it's its own thing. I, 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 I don't mean to overgeneralize. Um, I did enjoy this movie uh, to an extent. I think that I didn't hate it. That's about the best I can say about it to be, give my opinion of it. It's it's okay. Uh, I don't know what your opinion of uh, of it was. And before we go into the production of it, I just wanted to I want to know what you the thought. A couple things that I li- really liked about this movie in particular. Uh, number one. Yeah. Uh, is, is the writing for Lugosi. Mm. Now... I just, Universal really knows how to write Lugosi. I mean, maybe it's just that they're trying to do the same thing they did for Dracula or something, but they really do know how to write him, like, pretty well. So, it's just, like, when you come from something like White Zombie or something else, and then you come back to this one, it's much different writing. Well, both, remember, there's some other connections, too, because both, you know, Murder Lejean had this amazing unibrow, and so does Dr. Miracle. He does not have the amazing mustache and goatee, though, but his eyes are still lit with a fire when he talks about you know, uh, Eric. But what I do mean is that just the way that they craft it and like the overall quality is stepped up. Yeah, it is. I, you know, and they had a, they had a little bit of, I'd say a bigger budget than, than uh, white zombie did. I would definitely say. because it's, it's a bigger company. Universal was the really big company. These yeah, days. but it's it not, it's not, it's not Frankenstein or Dracula budget though. Um, but I do think they did spend a little bit more than they did with Dracula, I think, maybe. Another thing I do like is that I really like some of the lines that Pierre gives uh, to profess like his love. It's very poetically written. Well, yes, but in a way I kind of was listening to it, you know, kind of, uh, sure, it works for like a 1930s movie, but I was thinking that stuff just won't fly these days. You know, uh, a lot of ladies you might try those lines on would be rolling their eyes. I mean, I mean... For real. 
So I mean, yeah, it's 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 poetic. I agree. I agree. Um, all right. So let's get let's kind of get into it and talk about the making of this movie and some of the actors involved. When I do get to a particular actor, I'm going to kind of gloss over him a little bit because I will talk more about his performance in this than I will talk about him because we have gone over this particular actor in in great detail and we'll probably go through it again. But I'd rather talk about their performance in the movie uh, rather than their kind of history. Um, And I know you, you probably know who I'm going to talk about. So, okay, so let's get started. The first thing I wanted to mention is that we have an old friend or an old fruned, I should say, because uh, because it's Carl, Carl Frund. Carl Frund. He sh- he he was uh, he was the he, cinematographer, and he made for, the yeah. uh, he invented the unchained camera technique. Or that's at least right. He's with it, but that's fa- that's fantastic. He shot Dracula in nineteen thirty one, and he did Metropolis, which is another really great one. I I and haven't it, seen it, but it probably has really great camera effects. So anyway. Well, Carl Frund, um, he also directed Boris Karloff in The Mummy, 1932, which came previous to this. But I wonder if the way that the history of this movie shakes out is that he um, already had this movie, quote, in the can when he was doing The Mummy, and they just released this after that. I don't know. It depends on the, in the, in the timeline of when it was released. I, I, don't quote me on that. But I do know that... Um, the he does know how to frame Bella Lugosi really well uh, in all the shots, and that that's just because he's got he's got experience with shooting Bella Lugosi. So. so you want to talk about the uh, adaptation of this story? Uh, I will say, yeah. Uh, originally, the director uh, was it Robert Flory. He wanted to adapt the story of uh, from Edgar Allan Poe. Um, it was probably about 1930 when he got the idea to do it. But he, but he wasn't really attached to a film uh, version of it until he, after he was, you know, he was going to direct Frankenstein. And then he was pulled off, and then he went and was like, "Oh, I'm going to do this." Then yeah, uh, James Whale was put on Frankenstein, and thank you, you know, thank you for that because James Whale had had his own, you know, kind of eye for Frankenstein. But the thing is, though, that I think they saw the dark elements of it. And, and kind of those horror things, they went, ooh, uh, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein did pretty well. Maybe we'll actually give you your shot and let you do it. Yeah, you know, uh, this director seems pretty much like a Sa- Sam Raimi's granddaddy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know I know what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah I, although I think Sam Raimi has, has a horror feel, but with slight comedic elements when it comes to his horror. At least when he's allowed to direct the movie that he's... When he's allowed <laughs> to direct it, thank you. All right, so um, not much of Poe's original story is in the script, which was uh, written by Tom Reed and Dale Van Every. Um, and also, there isn't—I think there is not a Doctor Miracle character. Is that right? Yes. That was that was invented for this. Okay, so originally in the story, it was uh, it was just a sailor. It was a sailor who brought the ape from Borneo, and uh, the ape uh, saw him. You know shaving his mustache and whatever. And with, a, with a razor blade. So the ape just wanted to be a barber, and then he went out into the world, and then he saw two ladies, and one of them was pretty good for barbering, and then attempted to do so. <laughs> Killing her and striking the whole story. And just so you know, she dies in this movie. Yes, um, Madame L'Espinay, uh, whatever. Uh, es- uh, Espan- Espanya. She was saved at the end. 
but she's actually dead from the beginning of the actual story. Yeah, so it's it's quite a, a, a departure. They, they wanted to have a romantic interest and also a save the girl ending. Well, also they wanted to, they wanted a villain. They wanted a Bella Lugosi villain tale. It kind of also removes that interesting element of there was no villain to the story. You, I mean, you can't blame a guy who just brought him from Borneo and then he wandered loose, and you can't blame an ape because an ape is an ape; he has instincts, and uh, you can't blame him for anything. So it's 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 a really interesting quality that it kind of. Um, gets rid of in favor of, you know, as I was talking about before, the, the hero, the villain, and the romantic interest, and it kind of morphs the story into those three at uh, characters. And it's got to have those three characters, so it's uh, that's really interesting. Well, yeah, and then the thing is, this it, it becomes its own thing, its own organism, so to speak. So let's go over kind of, before we talk about a little bit more about Robert Flory and any, any, any of this, uh, producers or whatever. Well, I'll mention, I don't have to talk about this guy much, but I will say, you know, it's produced by Carl Emley Jr., who, um, you know, loved uh, spending that, that sweet universal cash. Remember, he had to have uh, those guys like uh, Irving Thalberg to kind of hold him in check because Irving Thalberg was the money guy and he was the producer and he could, he could you know, he would get the, the, the projects kind of going and kind of helps spend that money in the right way. But Carl Limley Jr. was, um, he got kind of big for his britches, thinking he was all that. And you'll you'll see that uh, he does have a connection to this movie beyond being the producer, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Let's go over the cast. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, Bela Lugosi plays Dr. Miracle. This was filmed during the time period after Dracula, and he was kind of typecast at the time. He's also got some more Universal movies coming up, like The Raven, Son of Frankenstein, 1939, uh, where he plays Igor. He was also 1932's White Zombie. We've already covered uh, that one. We've already covered that one. Uh, the thing is, from about 34 to about even 55, he was very typecast as either a mad scientist or a mad doctor. And even in this movie, they made him Hungarian for the purpose of, yes, Bela Lugosi is also Hungarian, so it's like, where does this guy's accent come, uh, where does yes. this guy come from? His accent is very Hungarian. And I was just like, but he is Hungarian. He sounds very European, and I was like, yeah, Hungary. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute, so or a little bit later. Um, of course, uh, the person that I would say is a connection to Carl Limley Jr., we'll talk about next. Alright, so um, you notice that very similarly to, I believe, oh yes, the uh, the girl, uh, the, the the female lead in White Zombie. Too, she goes, she was kind of too big for a britches kind of person. Well, a lot of these actresses, you know, other than Faye Ray, I think Faye Ray actually, I could definitely see some talents there beyond just her beauty. Uh, Faye Ray, of course, was King Kong and, and Most Dangerous Game, but this is Sydney Fox plays Mademoiselle Camille L'Espagne. Uh, she is the uh, the female lead in the picture. Um, there's also a part that where I think she's actually doesn't a dummy stand in for her as the the gorilla man is d- dragging her across. The yes, rooftops? because that's all she is a dummy. Oh, boo. That's so mean. No, I mean really. That they sometimes they have to do that because it's just he he just doesn't have the strength to carry a human being like like the uh, like Eric the ape does. And maybe saying she actually doesn't have bones. 
You see oh, your right. cheekbones, they're not they're they're fake. <laughs> they're gone, yeah. So Sydney Fox, uh, of course, she was born Sarah Leifer. That that was of course that's a Jewish name. So a lot of actors and actresses would um for different reasons they would say, Well, my name sounds too Jewish. Let's uh let's change it. You know, and and you know, it's a shame because there's a lot of great Jewish actors and directors that use their their birth name and that's all good for that but i think that at this time it was you know during the 30s and maybe even during the 40s um i think people were a little bit skittish about pe- letting people know they had jewish ancestry i don't know if that's her reasoning why i changed her name i think maybe it was just because sydney fox sounds so much more catchy and a lot of these people that change their name they their name their new names do sound more catchy and more and more like a hollywood person yeah because that's kind of the names you'd if you're born in hollywood you'd be like and that. and they're, and they're catchy and they and you know um and and they're easy to pronounce i think okay so she was born in poland in 1907 uh in, in 1911 which would be like when she was four she immigrated with her jewish parents uh rusha rose and jacob leifer to new york uh, then her mother remarried while they were in New York. Uh, second husband was Joseph Fox. Uh, oh, that's why her last name's Fox. Whoops. Okay. So <laughs> she didn't change her name for that. She just changed her name to Sydney. Um, you forgot so that detail. I did forget that detail. Yikes. All right. So uh, she um, had a lot of early stage roles. Um, she did get some, uh, a lot of, you know, like a lot of these actors and actresses, they start out in Broadway. Um, I think that the, she's in a lot of lukewarm kind of performances as far as, she's very energetic and she's kind of cute. Um, they're like, oh, she's she's kind of pretty and, and very vivacious. Um, that makes up a lot in some people's mind for, you know, the, the acting that's needed and a lot of stuff. But um, she did... Um, Somebody saw her in a production, and this guy's name was Carl Limley Jr. Of course, I, I didn't know this, but I think Carl Limley Jr. has an eye for the ladies. Um, so he saw her and decided to sign her with a multi-year contract. As you know, um, when you signed up with a multi-year contract for a production studio, you did films mainly for them. Um, sometimes you do it for outside. It was the studio system. They wanted to keep you you know, doing films for them. Um, you know, they, they would they would constantly have a script for you to read. They'd have the next picture lined up for you, ready to go. Her film debut uh, was alongside Humphrey Bogart, which I have a plan for you to see a Humphrey Bogart movie, uh, if not next season, the season after that. And we'll, we don't want to spoil it and tell you what, 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 what movie you're going to want to do. Um, well, that'll be a surprise. So she... Was also she made her debut along Betty Davis. Betty Davis, um, her she is an amazing actress. She got a lot more popular than Sydney Fox, to be honest, um, and got a lot more juicy roles. And again, you notice that that nineteen thirty she debuted in nineteen thirty one, and very next year she's in you know Murders in the Rue Morgue, uh, directed by Robert Flory. So. Let's just put it this way. This is her... I think I can forgive her a little bit for this being her early role. And for what it is, she does okay. I mean, what for what she's supposed to do. Um, uh, I, I forgot to comment on Bela Lugosi's acting in this. I think, honestly, um, he's the standout. 
as far as, you know, whenever he talks and whenever he's on screen, you can't take your eyes off him. He's he, you, he's constantly, you can see the wheels turning. But again, again, I just, uh, uh, I, I really, I think he's like the real standout. And a lot of people uh, agreed. So, at the time. All right, so um, she had a relationship with Carl Limley Jr. as his mistress. You've got this side chick, I guess is what people would call her nowadays, a side chick. She was a mistress. Uh, it was uh, called a Hollywood open secret, meaning that, oh, everybody knows, but they're not talking about it, is what I'm saying. That's what an open secret. She did get married in 1932 to somebody else. But, at, but of course, Carl Lindley Jr. was married to somebody else too, so they're probably doing some doing some uh, <clears throat> uh, little personal meetings on the side. Let's just say that. And so then she died. She did. She she died in uh, in 1942, about ten years later, of an overdose of sleeping pills that was ruled an accident. Quote. So her performance in this, like, she was really cute. She's just a yeah. really cute person, and she was sporting a bonnet all over this movie and i was just like that that's adorable i mean bonnets are traditionally signified uh for use of like babies or such so maybe it's like she, it she's kind of like a child like i don't pit. know that's that's actually a, a a fashion thing that women did uh that the bonnet was a big deal for a long time william so but it matched her character perfectly well is what i'm saying Oh, did you think it kind of... It aided her character, definitely. She was both cute, and she had a cute little bonnet, and it, it's just amazing. She's just adorable. Yeah, she's 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 sweet. So, um, now, let's talk about who was sweet on her, and uh, not in real life. I'm talking about in, in the movie. It's uh, Leon Ames. Uh, also, he was, uh, his birth name is Harry Wyckoff. I think he's also been known as, as Leon Wyckoff in some roles that he's done. He played Pierre Dupin. And I'll comment on that as in the book. There was also a character named Pierre who was also the love interest for uh, Madame L'Espinay. Um, but they kind of merged that character who was, uh, he was basically like a, he was like a witness kind of person that they checked over and he was like a, he, he, he sold tobacco. He was like a tobacco seller person. Tobacconist or whatever you want to call that. Yeah. Tobacconier. And, um, <laughs> to Buccaneer. Anyway, oh, wow. So, and they kind of merged that character in Auguste Dupin. I, I don't really know how that works in this movie. I mean, he doesn't do a lot of detective work in this movie. They make him a love interest. There's not, there's not much to, he does do some, but not, a, uh, not much. It's more scientific and it's kind of in his role. He's not doing it in an official capacity as like, like a detective. Like if you're wanting a detective movie, this movie is not it. They change it into more of like an action-y kind of thing so they focus off of the detective work. And they, they push off the mystery, like the case, all the way to like the end of the movie. So Yeah, and, and honest, here here's the thing uh, that's interesting about uh, August Dupin uh, is, is he predates Sherlock Holmes as one of the first you know, investig investigative detective uh, type characters for stories, which is great. But in this, you don't see that at all. Um, you do, well, you do see him kind of investigating, but not in official capacity. He plays a kind of a morgue Yeah, guy. you wouldn't be able to see it much in this movie, but in the book, it's definitely noticeable. As is it, what are they anyway? Because there's a, there's a, 
a mortician character in this movie, but there's also two, they work in the morgue. What do they really even do? I mean, you know, uh, do they invest, do they really investigate? So in the book as a character, he's kind of like a, he's a detective who does it kind of like amateurish. He, he does it like for fun. He doesn't get paid and stuff. And uh, another thing that's also portrayed in the book is that the police, contrary to stuff like Sherlock Holmes or whatever, yeah, the yeah. police are actually kind of like against the, the detectives or like a separate party as they're portrayed. And I think that's pretty fun. Why is that? Is that is, do they feel like, hey, we're supposed to be the ones solving this crime, even though they're probably doing a terrible job at it? Yeah, that's one of probably tons of factors. You know, that's not that's not at all... You different. In fact, well, a lot of times detectives are actually part of the police uh, force. Yeah, the ones that they don't like are private investigators. That's the closest thing I can think of to a detective. But they don't do the same things as a detective. They mainly do a lot of reconnaissance and watching and taking pictures. They're kind of like low, really low grade spies. Uh, I don't. I, I hate to say, it, but private private investigators, guys, if you're out there and you do private investigating, good on you. But I don't know if if really you're the level of, of somebody who works for the police department or the FBI. I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway. So, hey, that's a hot take, I know, for all you PIs out there. But So he was known for playing father characters, apparently? Yes, fatherly types. I think that was more later as he got older. Um, it just worked really well. I think probably more toward the 40s. And might also apply to their relationship in terms of, since I've said that she was playing like a baby kind of character, it's the father character. The daddy is taking care of the baby. That's kind of creepy, but... Okay. Is that really what you took away from this? All right, so he's been on, he's been in a lot of movies. Uh, Meet, Meet Me in St. Louis, which, uh, of course, I remember, I barely remember, remember him from, but that's because my wife has probably seen that movie tons of times. She could probably, you know, I would, next time we watch it with her, we'll point out, hey, that there's the guy from such and such. So, um, uh, let's see, he was in Little Women, on Moonlight Bay, uh, by the light uh, of the Silver Moon. Just so you know, it's the uh, 1949 version for those uh, pe- people like my mom being like, oh, that Little Woman movie? And it's like, no, there, there are multiple ones, but this is the Oh, there's the so many. There's so many to count. I mean, it's... This is the 49 version, really old. Right, exactly. Now, he's been in a lot of things, both uh, both on Broadway and early in his career, and then movies as well. Also in TV shows. Um, but he also, I think he also was one of the first people to start the... Did he start the Screen Actors Guild? Uh, uh, we haven't really investigated or talked about the Screen Actors Guild. I might see what that's about, but I've heard of it. I don't know exactly what it's about, though. Okay, he was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild in 1933. The Screen Actors Guild is extremely influential in Hollywood because um, it's a way for all actors to kind of band together and if they are mistreated as a group that, that they can, you know, they can uh, come together and kind of raise a stink about it. It's it's is it a, is it a, a, a union in a way? I don't I can't say, but I do know that they're that they call it SAG, S-A-G or SAG. What they do is is they actually um, have negotiated for the amount of money that you get for playing a role. If you're a member of SAG or whatever um, I think that they've agreed uh, if you go and you're part you're in a role in a TV show 
at a certain period, you know, it may change depending on the decade, but you actually get paid such and such amount of money. Um, you know, you pay your dues to SAG, you know, every year. So I think it is kind of like, it, it's, I would say it's kind of like a union, but not. Does that make sense? It's a guild. It's a guild. And honestly, I've heard it, you know, talked about so many times that it's such a mainstay in Hollywood that it just comes, you just kind of throw it off and say, oh, he's just, you know, he, he just paid his SAG dues or, or, you know, it was, he was a SAG, a SAG actor, which means that, um, you know, you're going to get a role and you're going to, and you're not going to, you're going to get paid the amount of money that you're supposed to get paid. And then you can negotiate for more, but you could just, you know, get paid what SAG, the agreed upon amount. Anyway, um, the thing that I remember, there's something that I remember is in the, I'd say the, er, not the early sixties, but in the, er, well, kind of in the early sixties, he was on a TV show that was very dear and dear to my heart, which was, uh, the Andy Griffith show. He played a character that I didn't, until I looked at his picture in the show, I was like, oh, he played that guy? Um, so I remember it was a one-time role, and he played kind of a principal or superintendent of, of a school um, who was approving the school play. And what was also another thing from 1960 uh, or 61 that he also was in? There was very, uh, well, uh, there was something he was also in, which was uh, in a kidnapping case. Uh, in 1964, him and his wife were held hostage in their home as an intruder demanded $50,000 before he would free them. Yes, but that, I, I, I'm sorry, but I was <laughs> trying to pull in the absent-minded professor, which you noted. Oh, anyway. that's right. You know, he was, a, he was, I'm sorry, you're right. He was an absent-minded, <laughs> he was, a, yeah, I'm the absent-minded one now. No, but, uh, okay, so. This is the part where we play like the real creepy music in the background, where I kind of, t- where I'm gonna talk like the unsolved, unsolved mystery guy. After inspecting the cash that they got from the business partner of Leon Ames, the kidnapper left Ames in the house bound with tape, and instructed Mrs. Ames to drive him in the couple's car. He also forced the business partner and a guest in the Ames house into the trunk. Eventually, police who had been alerted surrounded the car and freed the hostages. Oh boy, was that dramatic or what? I'm sure he'd remember that for the rest of his life. So anyway... Uh, Another movie he was also in was apparently there was a sequel called Son of Flubber. Yes, the yeah, uh, Absent-Minded Professor, I, I, I love these movies. He was the school or university there, I think he was the president of the school, and he was always kind of uh, getting flabbergasted or flubbergasted at, at the Absent-Minded Professor. Uh, Brainerd, his name was Ned Brainerd, was the professor in the first movie of Babson Mind Professor? Uh, just to kind of not go off the rails too much, he had a car that had a gas in it that allowed it to fly. Um, in the second one, he turned the gas into more of a solid, kind of rubbery substance, and he was able to, you know, it would bounce like crazy. And so, what he did is he put it on the soles of the shoes of the basketball team, which was terrible. They were terrible until they got the, the new shoes, and they were just jumping across the whole. Uh, basketball court and and slamming the ball. So that's one thing you can remember for. He also was in another uh series of movies. It was The Misadventures of Merlin Jones. It was did Disney, of course. Misadventures of Merlin Jones and the sequel uh The Monkey's Uncle. Speaking of Monkey's Uncle. Oh, here we go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No wonder After mentioning that Noble Johnson was in this movie as Hanos, uh let's go on to the ape. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't know, Noble Johnson again is in this. Uh, and he's of course wearing makeup, 
and uh, so you're you're you you're kind of being going to be hard pressed to find him. I'm just glad they are. You know, I'm glad that they are doing the reverse in these roles that Noble Johnson has had because they're like, oh, you know, he's he's a newbie in this one. Oh, well, in this one he's a he's a Russian Cossack. Well, in this one he's I don't know some other uh, race, which I, I think is I think is good. I I I never knew that I really liked this guy, but I, I liked seeing him in these roles. Anyway, back to this. So another unsung uh, hero uh, is uh, Charles Cruz Gamora, uh, a, and he is more commonly known as Charles Gamora. More importantly, in fact, why is Gamora? Oh, uh, <laughs> why? I'll tell you why is Gamora. He is the king of the gorilla men because he played he played gorilla. That sounds like something from uh, uh, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. So no, he he played uh, gorilla people or gorilla beast-like men in like a ton of movies in a gorilla suit because he was um he was like five foot four inches uh which was just perfect for him to wear a gorilla suit um the first time he did he was in the leopard lady of night and it was in 1928 he has been opposite lon chaney in the movie the unholy three uh, he was like i said he was in uh with bella Lugosi. he was in a couple laurel and hardy movies uh, the Marx Brothers uh, in a movie called At the Circus, of course, which, of course, you'd have a gorilla there, of course. He's worked alongside uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. You know you know Bing Crosby, White Christmas, the main guy from White Christmas. Right. Yeah. And uh, you also noted here Abbott and Costello from Africa Screams, which would obviously have a gorilla. Yes, absolutely. Africa Screams was very much so uh, a parody of those movies where people go into darkest Africa to, to explore. And then of course, cannibals, you know, which, so oh, that's, there's racist overtones of that, but the cannibal tribe attacks them and put them in a, a pot of stew or something to cook them. Yeah. Stuff like that. So that movie is, t- is fulfilled with that. So, but we're going to see uh, a handful of Abbott and Costello movies, mainly as they relate to uh, the universal monsters uh, that they will meet. Um, so anyway, uh, after the forties, he played uh, gorillas a lot less, and he played like more aliens and stuff like that. Because that's again, you could see where people were going with things. They were obsessed with monkeys, and then as it went more into the, you know, uh, the space age, they were into aliens and mutants and stuff. Yeah, like the 1950s is absolutely full of that stuff as well. Oh, see. chock, chock it's a block. A, it's a fairly science fiction pulp era in terms of what we're covering. So the uh, the screenwriter is Tom Reed. Now we were like, oh well, who's Tom Reed? I have no that's the, the I have no idea. What a boring name. Let's go read about him. Let's 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 read. So he actually uh, was a screenwriter for probably a handful of stuff, but the the three that will will uh, concern us are the Phantom of the Opera, nineteen twenty five, uh, we've that we've done, uh, the Murders in the Rue Morgue, which we are talking about now, and Bride of Frankenstein which came out in 1935, which we will do, and I'm really looking forward to that one. So, yeah, that's that's the screenwriter. Um, but I can say just a little quick little thing about Robert Flory. He is the director. Uh, we did talk about a little bit what, about what he did and wh- how he got connected to this project. But he's he's been working for a lot of different studios over the years, even past this movie. He grew up in Paris, very close to where George Méliès was, uh, was directing. Um, and he was an assistant to some early filmmakers. You know, a lot of these guys start out as assistants. You know, they, they go they go fetch somebody's coffee 
or you know, or get get their clothes dry cleaned, and then and then as they move up, they end up being production assistants, and then they be, end up being producers, and then they're like, "What I really want to do is direct." So he he was an assistant director on some movies in the nineteen twenties, um, and he started working in the late twenties. He, he did a, a, a lot of different movies at that time. Uh, I think he did he did like doing the more experimental stuff. And kind of doing his own thing. But when he was working for the studios, I think that they had him work under conditions that maybe he didn't want to work under. They were like, well, I want you to do this and do that. Um, you know, and a lot of times you've got to listen to what the studio says if you want to keep your, you know, keep the work. Um, he had, he contributed to the, to the script of the 1931 version of Frankenstein, but he went uncredited. He was going to be given the job to direct Frankenstein, but... And he did a screen. Remember, he did a screen test with Bella Lugosi as the monster. But Universal Studios were like, "Ah, uh, no, we oh, don't that like was this it." Dude? Yeah, we didn't like. He was the one that wanted uh, Bella Lugosi to be the monster, ah, and they cool. they went with Boris uh, Karloff instead, which I'm actually very thankful for because Boris Karloff just nailed it. He knocked it out of the park. I'm sorry, Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi does play the monster in Frankenstein versus Wolfman. And he does okay, but honestly, you know, you're really watching it to see these two titans go after each other. I mean, that's, that's what you're watching it for, honestly. When Universal got Flory murders to the, in the Rue Morgue, he worked with a cinematographer Carl Frund, and they worked on the elaborate sets for the, you know for the movie in the style of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. They they said that that's what they wanted. They were like, let's do 19th century Paris. Uh, but seen through a kind of a lens of Caligari, um, so they were inspired by some of those early expression or German expressionist films, which I thought was nifty. Yeah, this the sets in this film are really pretty. They're just they they're good. That, they're, they're pretty good. Chef's kiss, chef's, chef's kiss, kiss, buddy. Uh, so after this, you know, he worked for Warner Brothers, Paramount, Columbia, uh, then Warner Brothers again. Um, he got he got in a, he was actually uh, burned when he was in a car wreck in 1944. Uh, you know, I always like to give those little soap opera little details. He also another connection with movies that we may have done is he directed uh, Tarzan and the Mermaids in 1948, which of course we haven't covered, but is part of the uh, Tarzan RKO franchise. Yeah, it's with. Uh, uh, I wonder if it was there was a bunch of movies that did for RKO, and then didn't they? Didn't it go to a different uh, production company? Anyway, it was with jo- it was Johnny Weissmuller who was with that, which we've already done in Tarzan the Eight Man. So he really he was a very free spirit with his stuff. He wanted to do his own thing. Um, I think that he just kind of started working for television um, after that, uh, probably because you know he could get in and maybe do a couple things and then get out uh, because. When you're making a movie, it's more long term. It's it's really like having a baby. You, you're you're really like caring for this child. You're raising it, um, you know, and you're really precious about everything. And I think that he was he's very particular about what he wants. And when you have a studio standing over you saying, "Ah, no, we don't want that," then and you have to stick to your guns sometimes, uh, and that it doesn't always work out. So, uh, but what had happened was with the movie. You did notice that they reshot some of the scenes and added some more scenes um, because after Frankenstein and Dracula did so well, they were like, uh, let's do some more. 
because you know horror was was showing that it was viable that, that it could actually make a good little buck but i but i will tell you this i don't think the movie made a lot of money the reception of it people didn't have a lot of great things to say about it at the time they were like it's okay they thought that it was a little bit much for some of the scenes you know because there there's you know scenes where they're forcibly removing blood from uh from a woman so just heads up on that you know the stuff about the about the ape kind of uh putting somebody up a up a uh chimney um they don't do that in this movie though but oh they do they do but they they did they, they do they did it with the mom the mother uh they lift up a thing and the mother kind of flops out and so but they don't show her going up the chim- the actual chimney is what i'm saying no they they show her she's hanging upside down and she's kind of she's in the She's in the fireplace. You see, but her like not hanging. the chimney. Well, the chimney is above the fireplace, so you can't see her. So that that's no, you you can't see her body in it, but you know she's stuck in it because you can kind of see her flop a little bit forward. Uh, also, I see that Tom Reed's was in the Twilight Zone, and I wanted to ask if you'd like to watch the Twilight Zone with me sometime. I haven't watched any of those. I hear they're pretty good. Guess what? They're awesome. Uh, but there's there's a ton of them that are really great, and there's some that are okay. And, you know, and, and there's some of them that were, it's kind of like episodes of Star Trek. You're like, some of them are okay, but some of them are really fantastic. But if, but definitely if you probably want a, an old TV show that is also sci-fi, then you'd want that. I'm telling you, there's enough in Twilight Zone and it's, I guess, a sister show or it's out, Outer Limits. Um... That show, there's enough in that you could actually do a podcast just off of talking about episodes of those shows. So, honestly, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. If you know, if you want to, uh, William, in between doing the podcast, we will watch some episodes of it. We might even just skip to the ones that are really iconic. There is actually a movie uh, called Twilight Zone, the movie that was made in the '80s. And they took a couple episodes of the and remade them, or uh, with modern with modern actors. And so we could watch that. It has, uh, but it's got a couple of really interesting factors about it that that may. When I tell you about the movie, it may change your mind about wanting to see it. So, are there any last things about this movie you want to say before? We... Um, I will say that people uh, really did like Lugosi's uh, acting in this. Uh, also, another thing to mention is that there was a Murders of the Rue Morgue, and they called uh, an, another movie, and they called it Phantom of the Rue Morgue. And that matched it. Phantom of the Opera plus Murders in the Rue Morgue would probably they kind of they kind of smashed them together. I don't know how it would work. You convert the ape into the Phantom of the Opera, obviously, because oh, they're both named me? the same. So you got a monkey playing the organ. Yes, with a mask on. I do, I don't. I've never seen the movie, so I can't say how they did it. But I I think in my mind it just sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Hopefully Warner Bros. did it pretty well. Did you know that Warner Bros. was back this one as well? Like oh, so yeah, many absolutely. of the, the only reason that they're good is because they were made back then and received well, so I mean <laughs> No, the War the Warners have been doing this for a long time. Yeah, we we've been yet to see anything by Warner Bros. Oh that that's true, but we will. We will. Um yeah, so not much else to say about the production of it. I think uh, when we get into the plot, we'll talk more about the little, the little that we'll go, but you know, detail by detail on what happened in the movie. And so, um, we will uh shove 
the entire collective of the audience, we will grab you and bundle you up and throw you up a chimney and cut your hair as well. Oh, wow. That got dark really quick. <laughs> how about how about we don't? Okay. And how about we how about we kidnap you and, and take you on a journey across the lovely skyline of and, gr- and grab you and pull you over our shoulder like Santa because after all he's good at throwing things past chimneys therefore the uh, Eric is probably Santa since he has expert at throwing people into chimneys he can throw bags down chimneys obviously as well and Eric Eric is ba- he's gorilla claws yeah he, he that that is the takeaway from this whole section that is uh skip this whole podcast the the only thing you need to know is Eric the ape is Santa and now you can <laughs> yeah that's definitely going to make a lot of the creepier uh you know to- creepier scenes a little bit nicer now that you're thinking you know you're 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 humming uh Santa Claus is coming to town ta- like in your head and you know you're on the night <laughs> All right, let's let 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 let's we've we've summed up the whole thing by saying Eric is Santa Claus. Let's just let let's move on. All right, let's go to have a break, and when we come back. We'll talk about the plot of the Burners of the Rue Morgue. See you in a little bit. Back, listeners. Uh, we are here talking about murders in the Rue Morgue. A uh, a horrible crime has been committed. Uh, well, not yet, anyway. Uh, the horrible crime has been committed, and we must solve it because this is a detective picture, after all, with some horror elements. And as always, written by the fantastic Edgar Allan Poe. And um, kind of reading through his catalog because Dad gifted me so graciously a best of. Oh, and I, yeah. I, when I read through it again, I was like, the memories just came back. There was a one of them, you know, was about they resurrect a mummy and the mummy reacts to like the modern world, and there's all sorts of stuff. Lot two forty nine. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but there was another one, and it was called Hop Frog. And just by that title, you know it'll be a fun one to read. And I'm like, all right, Hot Frog, yeah. I've... Edgar Allan Poe has fun sometimes? Yes, I know. A lot of people think that he's depressing all the time, but no, he has not been depressing all the time. You know, he he can write a detective story. He can write a story that's for comedy or for children, like Hot Frog. He can, okay. He can, he can do all that stuff. Maybe it's because... He went through a depressing stage of life, and then he just converted. Well, you know, honestly, that he's he is more famous for his suspense tales and and the creepy stuff. To be honest, um, I do think that Universal Studios and other movie studios, production studios, they did kind of go, okay, uh, literary uh, horror, um, Dracula, uh, Frankenstein. Uh, remember that guy Edgar Allan Poe from the eighteen hundreds? Yeah, Ed- Edgar Allan who? Poe. Excuse me, I thought that was a panda that did some ninja moves. No, <laughs> it, you know, if we're trying to be... Paired up with a praying mantis. If we're trying to not be Poe, we have to be rich. 
So if we make films about Poe, it'll make us rich. Uh, I will tell you this so right th- right now, William. The next ones that come out, let me see if I can name some off the top of my head. And I think maybe they're on our list. Maybe they're not. Uh, the Raven, not the one with uh, 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 Vincent Price in it. I think this is one This actually does have Bela Lugosi and Karloff in it. has nothing to do with the poem The Raven, Nevermore. Uh, the other one is the black cat, which, which we are actually doing. And that one has little to nothing at all to do with the post. That is what universal does is that any, you don't, don't trust it to be exactly like the book or a short story or, or, or at all. Yeah. Uh, You know, I, I know a little bit about some of the stories of Poe. The name might just be an illusion toward it and it might that's it might, true it, it might do something new with it who knows that's fascinating. yeah do not expect uh universal to be slavish with the, their stories um when it comes to edgar Allan poe uh they don't they don't do it really with any of the things that they're basing things on but there's enough there at least in dracula and frankenstein uh, and, the, and the invisible man uh, literally speaking uh to so you can kind of find some points of connection but the edgar Allan poe Title movies, I think they are they are Poe's only in title only. Um, there was no Doctor Miracle in in the book. All right. So but anyway, anyway, the most important thing that we need to do on this oh, podcast nice. is nice. jump into this plot, this nice juicy plot. We're gonna put our teeth in it and our all our canines and pre mortar whatever. Just... We're gonna mix our our blood with the blood of this plot. And see what happens. See if see if we get that nice clotting. <laughs> You'll know what we're talking about when we get to that scene. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to spoil it. Okay, so the first thing that you notice jumping into the movie is that funny thing is that the movie starts with the same cue as the mummy. Swan Lake and all. And Dracula. And Dracula, too. Well, no. That's a different... No? Oh, that that one you... starts uh, with Swan Lake. But this one, it has kind of like a... I'll play it here, but then it jumps into Swan Lake immediately after. Yeah, play it here. Yeah, I I can definitely tell a difference. Yeah, it's very slight, but yeah, they they did kind of pull that. Mm -hmm. Another very slight thing is that they drew their S's leading in the credits. And I was like, why specifically? Did you want, like... I, I don't know. Carl Lumley does not have an S in it, so why? Are you Shrek or something? <laughs> no, they're trying to be really creative. I, I, you know, and every little bit helps. You know, and I think a lot of the creativity did go into design on this movie, especially with you know the the posters in the back are really cool. You know, you have the group of eyes, and you have the yeah the, la- the laser eyed monster. That all that that was also Frankenstein as well. That so they, was they they this did is all their the, all style, the I guess. This is their style for movies like this. That's yep, pretty cool. Definitely, definitely. So, the actual movie begins with a boat floating by in a river, looking toward a city, and the text appears: Paris, eighteen forty-five. Gee, I wonder where we are and what time period we're in. I don't know. We definitely do. Is is that a miniature shot or no? What do you think? Yeah, that that's my. It it definitely looks like it was a miniature. Yep. So where do we open? Um, we open in the circus. Or like like oh, a carnival, a carnival, a carnival. Yeah. And this set is pretty awesome. It's got all sorts of stuff. There's people, you know, drinking their booze. There's 
there's swings as well, which were most likely, you realize, uh, the most common form of entertainment uh, enjoyment then. That's pretty cool. Like, their most common enjoyment was swings. Yeah, and it didn't cost anything. And sometimes the, the a lot of those uh, rides are human-powered. They don't require any you know, uh, engines or anything like that. It's just somebody pushing it. And back then, they didn't have video games. So, well, there's nothing better to do but go outside and swing. So, um, basically, we have, uh, we introduce our two main characters and two not-so-very main characters. Right. We have Pierre Dupont, which, again, they push two characters into each other. They and combined. And we have Camille L'Espagne, and their friends Paul and Minier, and they go about drinking, they talk, and they notice that there are some Arabian dancers, and there's also some redskins, in quotes, um, as well, that they're exhibiting, as well as Eric the Ape, of which is the one that they enter, obviously. Yeah, it's interesting that they say, oh, yeah, a strange thing like a beast, and then we have these very strange people that, that are from you know from exotic places, and we still haven't figured out how to treat foreigners in a very respectful way. Yeah, and thing is, since it's in black and white, who who knows if their skin was actually red? How could you tell? I mean, those 1930s kids... I can tell these guys are actually Native Americans. By their facial shape, you can definitely tell that. I mean, it's not like, you know, when you have somebody who's pretending to be uh, African American or something with face paint. I mean, these guys really do look like Native Americans. And it was filmed in America, so they could get those kind of people. In- but they'd just be like, yeah, stand here while we be racist toward you, huh? Yeah, I mean, that's, that. I'll tell you, you know, that's that's the way it is for a lot of people um, of uh, of minorities uh, during this time. But we will see it dissipate gladly. Yeah, we do over, over time. And, and when we see that dissipate, we're going to celebrate, right? Yes. Celebrating just like in the circus. Anyways, they enter Miracle's show where he exhibits... Eric. And I really do love the personalities displayed in this film because all of their dialogue is like witty. It it shows character. And you know, especially some of the serenades that uh, Pierre gives Camille. They're all pretty great. That's why I like the writing in this movie is because like the character's dialogue is just so full of personality and wit. Yeah, and some of it is very you know, uh, modern as in modern, as in 1932, and some of it is very Poe-ish, so to speak, you know, like the way Poe wrote. And uh, some of that, I think, is due to the actor John Huston. When he was early on in his career, he actually did work on some of the dialogue on that, but he was uncredited, and uh, and so, you know, and he, of course, John Huston had his, uh, his issues with both the way that America did its thing. Uh, I think he moved to another country. I think it's Spain. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, he, they cut it out a lot, and so he was kind of like, uh, whatever, and so he got uncredited. But uh, this whole carnival thing also reminds me of another film that I saw, The Man Who Laughs, with uh, Conrad Veidt, uh, because he is, he's in a sideshow himself, and so this whole sideshow, and also, you have to say... The Greatest Showman. <laughs> this is The Greatest Show. Uh, there's some definite connections to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 
I mean, totally. Yeah, like, the the villains are the exact same. They're circus people who go about... Unfortunately, Dr. Miracle doesn't have uh, Mickey Mouse gloves, but I mean... Right. Even still, they kind of did take... Borrowed some of those ideas. In, in this scene, doesn't Miracle say, if you're looking for some sideshow freak or some showman here, then go back to the front and ask for your money back, because that's not what I'm here for. He's he he basically says, yeah, I'm doing this sideshow thing to show you this thing, but it's to expose you to the amazing science that I'm going to do or go, that I'm experimenting on. And he he's he's like he really wants people to 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 see what he's doing, and he's very excited by it. But he he's a little, he's a little weird, so he kind of comes off a little weird to them. Do, is it okay? So Caligari and Miracle are both uh, educated men. They're not just uh, like a carnival barker just saying, hey, come see the, the dog-faced boy or the bearded lady. He, it's not just that. They're educated men showing what they're doing to a, to a sideshow audience. But they are, they're, you know, they're letting them know that they're quite a bit more um, sophisticated than what it may seem. Yeah, so to sum this, uh, the exhibition up, we're going to play a quote. Uh, this film is very quotable, but we're yeah. going to play... Dr. Miracle talking about uh, the exposition, the, the exhibition, and about Eric. I'm Dr. Miracle, Monsieur Madame, and I'm not a sideshow charlatan. So if you expect to witness the usual carnival, hocus pocus, just go to the box office and get your money back. I'm not exhibiting a freak, a monstrosity of nature. But a milestone in the development of life, the shadow of Eric Day, hangs over us all. The darkness before the dawn of man. Listen to him, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to you. Can you understand what he said, or have you forgotten? I will translate what he said. My home is in the African jungle, where I lived with my father and my mother, and when my brothers and sisters, that I was captured by a band of hairless white apes and carried away to a strange land. I'm in the prime of my strength. And I'm lonely. Here is the story of man in the slime of chaos. There was the seed which rose and grew into the tree of life. Life was motion. Fins changed into wings. Wings into ears. Crawling reptiles grew legs. Aeons of ages passed. There came a time when a four-legged thing walked upright. Behold, first man! Do they still burn men for heresy? Then burn me, monsieur. Light the fire. Do you think your little candle will outshine the flame of truth? Do you think these boards and curtains 
are my whole life. They are only a trap to catch the perils of fools. My life is consecrated to great experiment. I tell you I will prove your kinship with the ape. Yeah, I love that. So there are some theories that you can make about Dr. Miracle's actual goal. So it's kind of confusing. Like he takes the blood of his victims and some would think that they would like inject it into the ape to make it more human or inject gorilla blood into the woman to change her into an ape. I don't really know. And another thing theory is that Camille is just supposed to be the mate of Eric. They're 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 supposed to be mated. And that is very confusing. It's all creepy. I mean, you know, I mean, whatever you may think, you know, of our relationship, we we are our relationship to to primates, we are very similar in many ways and we share many genetic traits. But you can't just take the blood of one creature and mix it with another and somehow get something crazy like that. You just It just doesn't work out that way. But anyway, Miracle and uh, Janos are also, they really like their uh, Camille. They're like, um, they're enchanted, as the Wikipedia says. Well, they say Eric, Eric, he says Eric likes her. Yes. So maybe... Well, you could put anything in the mouth of a monkey. That's true. Like a sandwich or a banana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or a strange made-up twin language that they have. He's like, you know, he's talking to the to the monkey, and he's like, it almost sounds like, I wonder if it's like a made-up kind of gibberish version of Hungarian that he made up. I, I don't have any data to back that up. It's just a theory, a Jason theory. Okay, to set this up, he says that, that they speak their own language, and this does come up in the book or the story and later on in the movie, but he mentions that they have their own language that, that Miracle knows how to speak. But it sounds like, like a Hungarian gibberish. Is, does, that, does that jive with you? Does that make sense? Yeah, listen to it again and tell me he, later on and, and tell me he's not speaking like a weird version of Hungarian. It sounds it's weird. So Camille, uh, Eric wants Camille's bonnet that she has. It's, she, she's just a very adorable character. So she, she has a bonnet. Eric wants bonnet. Camille gives Bonnet to Eric. Pierre tries to get Bonnet back. Eric does not want uh, Bonnet to be stolen. <laughs> Miracle says Bonnet replace. Camille <laughs> thinks he's sus, won't give him the address. Okay, with that, uh, he does. Eric does not like other males intruding on his territory, being interested in Camille, and chokes. Pierre out. I mean, he's like, I mean, a lot. But but the, they pull back, and of course, Pierre doesn't want to sue. I mean, look, look, in today's modern world, he'd be like, I'm going to sue you. That's the first thing he would say after he was able to talk. But he doesn't do that. Um, but they're like, they just want to get out of there. They're like, that's nice. Got to go now. And so then they leave. And then Hanos tails them. Dr. Miracle, though, he wants to... They have to tail him because Doctor Miracle wants to know. Uh, it's kind of creep. It's kind of creeper, you know. Yeah. He wants, he wants to know their address so he can send uh, the bonnet back to her, um, because the monkey wants to keep it and uh, or the ape or whatever. 
And she does it. They don't fall for it. He's like, no, that's all right. We'll get another one. That's great. Have it. I think that Pierre is kind of smart. He's like, yeah, no, no, thanks. And, you know, that feels a little creeper. And he and he insists. And it's like, uh, and that's why you have got to have Janusz follow him, uh, Mr. Noble Johnson, uh, with some great makeup on. I love that makeup. All right. So the next scene, we get them in uh, their house and Pierre is serenading Camille. And it's very nice writing, especially his second serenade. And we'll put that here. You're like a song the girls of Provence sing on May Day. And like the dancing in Normandy on May Day. And like the wine in Burgundy on May Day. Oh, Camille, I love you. And I love you too, Pierre. Look. There's all of our Paris spread out before us. Think of what all those walls are hiding. Broken hopes and bodies and hearts. Absent dreams. Starvation madness. Crimes of the streets. And tragedies of the river. <laughs> Paris, my city. Yeah, he's definitely sweet-talking Camille, and he's... But I like the lines here. It's very poetic. He's whispering sweet nothings in her ear. This is a vi- this is very much so, you know, the rom- romantic lead. It depends on how you look at it. You could appreciate it for what it is. Maybe I am a devil's advocate, whatever, but <laughs> um, I'd, I'd see the bright side, I guess. Yeah, I think be nice to it. There's yeah. something that you can get out of a movie, even if it's like bad or something. It's like you can like a movie for something. Like there's something that you could probably like about this movie or a previous movie and such and such. Yeah, and uh, it's definitely a lot to appreciate in here. I do think that you know, uh, Lugosi is the most memorable thing in this movie. To be honest, he rules every little scene that he's in. I mean, but yeah, you got to give you got to give it to to Pierre. I mean, Pierre, he's got the girl. I mean, you know, he's 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 giving her the poetic, you know, and and she's really falling for it. It's romantic. I got it. But that's what you say. So, meanwhile, we have two men fighting over the streetwalker, and um, they brutally murder each other. They they get they they slay each other. Slay girl, slay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think that that's the only reason why she goes with him is because he's like, oh, come over here with me. So maybe she thinks that he's rich or something. He's got some money, but they don't ever go into what she's doing or why and they don't. They just say lady of the night or whatever. But yeah, it's it's still a creepy scene because you because especially when she's screaming as they just fall to the floor and she's constantly screaming and also kind of like a laugh scream. We could play that here, but it is extremely horrifying, this scene and the scene that follows, where Dr. Miracle then steals her and tortures her to draw her blood. It is extremely horrifying. So Yes, yes, it is. And, and I will tell you this, though. Um, anybody that knows the story of Jack the Ripper, when they see, like, a guy in a top hat and a dark cloak approach a, let's say, a streetwalker in the fog... It just makes me think of like you know Jack the Ripper. So and it's the fog is really creepy. Um, and he he's he, he acts like he's you know a nice guy, but you know he's up to no good. And obviously we find out he is definitely up to no good. So unfortunately, it has impurities rendering it unusable. The blood. Yes, the blood. And um, also she's dead now. <laughs> so uh, Hannes. He he chucks it in the river. 
So let's let's move on to the next scene. You know, um, her body is then taken to the police station as a group of um, watchers are commenting on the situation. And we'll put a quote here as well. May this week. Life is hard. River is kind. River is soft. It rocks them to sleep. <laughs> and asks no pay. Three women. Always more. Always young. Also, notice how differently dressed the police are if you watch this movie. They, um... They were very different in eighteen, uh, the eighteen forties. I'm pretty sure they're also a new invention as of then. Actually, they're, yeah, they're more the constables and stuff. Yeah, they're more like soldiers here. They're they're kind of like conscripted soldiers. So then there's this dude who, um, I think he like writes the records for the morgue yes. as they uh, lump her in. And this dude is uh, really funny, and he says, like, her age is like 3,000 stuff. We'll play that here. Age? Oh, Eddie. Thousand or thirty. And, um, Pierre wants to examine the victim's blood, but the morgue keeper forbids it because they're afraid that since he's a med student as well as a detective, uh, the med student's steal the bodies whenever they you know they're like hey can we uh, borrow your body we need it for something really really important and then they, they never appear again do you yeah what i don't want to know what these med students are doing with the bodies but i'm just thinking like are they having a a thing where they you know they uh make make makeshift catapults and like shoot the, the dead bodies at each other from across the <laughs> no, courtyard they... or something it's more like they use it for, like, studying. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the experimentation. Auto- autopsies and stuff. Yeah, autopsies, yeah. There's a real true story about the Edinburgh... I think I talked about this before uh, during the Frankenstein episode. The Edinburgh uh, school in Scotland, they were desperate for bodies to do autopsies on for the to show the students, to teach them, right? So they, he, uh, they got with... Some guys named uh, Burke and Hare, and these two guys, they got bodies for the school, and they were like, great, can you get more? The fresher, the better. And then they were like, well, I tell you what, we can get, you know, we can get them really fresh for you. They're like, okay. And so these guys go, like, like poison people and, you know, kill, like, <laughs> old, like older folks. I'm serious. And they would kill people, and the whole thing is just a fascinating true crime story, but... Yeah, the the whole process by which these med med schools, you know, would get cadavers is just uh, at the time was not completely above board. But the these crimes like this actually, you know, when they got caught, they moved those in the better direction and they they were a lot more respectful with how they got the bodies. So, the next scene involves uh the cook, the cook dude, I don't think he ever appears again, and he's making macaroni. Uh, I, I, it, it's more like spaghetti, but uh, Pierre's too busy discovering a foreign substance in the victim's blood to eat. Anyway, they also think that Dr. Miracle is sus, so they don't really like him. Yeah, and well, you forgot to say that that uh, that uh, Pierre uh, found special strange markings on all the bodies. Uh, and he gave the, uh, coroner... Oh, yeah, he bribed him. He, he bribed, he bribed him to get the bodies. 
So that's why. Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, Camille has gotten her new bonnet from the mail, and she's gone out to the park after a really cool scene where there's some dudes down below and they sing a they they sing a song that was probably really popular then. Oh, it's the pic the picnic scene. Yeah, the picnic scene. They go out to the park. And uh, also, uh, during this transition, you can uh, also catch a glimpse of someone on one of those old bicycles. You know what the, the, front, the, the front wheel is huge? You I know think it's those? called a velocipede. <laughs> yes. I'm that, serious. That's crazy. But, yeah, he's driving that. One thing we noticed before this scene is we have a replacement bonnet, number one. Number two, we meet the mom of Sidney Fox's character, Camille. So then, uh, meanwhile, um, Pierre comes to visit Miracle. He, he went to say that he received her bonnet uh, happily, and then he's like, good, uh, see you later. And then he says that he's going to leave for Munich, which is uh, in Germany. But then when he exits the mover guys, he's like, hey, he's staying, staying in Paris. Don't move any of that. And then he's like, huh, that's that that's us. He just he just lied to me. Right. And, uh, he, he just lied to me. So then Miracle, instead of leaving for uh, Germany, he then visits Camille's house um, and then comes and asks uh, because Eric um, likes Camille so much uh, to go visit Eric. You know, come with him in his carriage, and she's like, "No." Yeah, she. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the the guy, uh, Pierre, actually goes back to uh, do some more research, and uh, Miracle's taking advantage of the fact that the boyfriend's gone to come even knock on the door and say that you know you need to come down and talk to the monkey. Since she refuses, Miracle then sends Eric to kidnap her, because Miracle must have her blood. And now we begin the segment of a story where Larry does not sing a silly song, but <laughs> <laughs> right. We begin the segment upon which this is the only part that appears in the short That's story. That's creepy, right? Uh, is there a scene in the short story where uh, where Pierre is looking at two books with pictures of of blood cells, and one says gorilla blood, and the other one says human blood, and he goes, "Oh, I get it." Yes. Anyway. Um, there's a ton of stuff that doesn't appear in the movie. Like, in particular, the book has a really long intro describing, like, rational thought and deduction for a long time, and it's just, like, in a, a huge analysis. So that that's right for cutting, but also... Yeah, but it's awesome because of the influence that it had on, on you know, even future detective i recommend work. you go read it it's a it's a pretty good read anyway yeah but read it as a detective story not necessarily as the horror story that universal would want you to to have it be taken as pierre then arrives at camille's house to see that she is screaming or rather here because i'm dumb anyway um he tries to enter the room but the room is locked the gorilla has invaded into her room and the murder is happening what what I think is crazy is everybody else comes out of their house and watches him try to bang down the door. Yet, and you you'll probably get into this, but they say something, you know, with their witnessing of this whole thing that doesn't make any sense. They must not like Pierre or something because anyway. So all these people uh, come out, the police, uh, yeah, and they arrest Pierre because neither Camille nor her mother are present. They don't know where they are. They don't know what happened to them. They just know Pierre is there. 
and that there were screams. Well, this, there's another thing that they, there's a kind of a lengthy scene in here uh, where I don't know if it's played for comedic effect or what, but one guy says that he heard someone inside uh, the room speaking Danish. No, it's German. No, it's Italian. They, and the Italian. Yes, that is also in the book. That is the thing that's in the book. I'm glad they kept that. You know, he's interviewing the witnesses. He's like, um, well, in the book, he says, I know definitely one person was French, but another one was Italian. No, it's German. No, it's Danish. No, it is Spanish. And in this one, instead of the presence of a French man, instead they said that they heard her screaming and then a voice. But um, they could not tell what this foreign language is. And... um, he then f- proves that Eric is the culprit by then finding uh, Camille's mother's uh, dead body's hand in the fireplace, which just happens to have ape fur. And then Pierre says it is obviously Eric, though there was much more evidence that was much better in the in the book. That is because you know you could be like, well, the foreign language was an ape. That would obviously make sense. And you see these strangle marks <laughs> on uh, Camille's body. As you can see, these cannot have been made with a human. And that's how they like kind of prove it. And that's what I like the short story for. And that yeah. is the end of the part that is in the book. Thank you. And now back to your regularly scheduled program of, of the Murders of, of the doc- Of Dr. Miracle, he has her blood, and Eric is eager um, for injection. At least that's what I think. Injection. Right. Her blood is perfect. Then, the police, along with Pierre, since they definitely know it's uh, Miracle's ape, um, they get to his hideout, and uh, Eric then turns against Miracle and violently strangles him. So, the shadows tell the story instead of seeing it actually happen. So, that's it's horrifying when you see him just get absolutely demolished. Yeah. So, when the police then arrive, Eric then grabs Camille and climbs the ladder up to the rooftops, and the police chase him uh, from exiting outside, and there's a crowd in commotion, and they arise, and the police... They also have uh, planes. Uh, Some airplanes come and fly around him as he's on top of the building, and he swats at them. And he gets shot and falls down to the ground. And they say, uh, tis beauty that killed the bee. Oh, wait a minute. That's King Kong. (laughs) 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 Okay. There's no helicopters in this movie, sadly. There's there's no planes, right. There's no planes. The only thing that is plain to see is the ape. (laughs) Yes. So the police then corner Eric on the rooftops of a small dockside house. Eric then confronts Pierre on the rooftop, and then Pierre shoots Eric, and the ape falls, saving Camille from peril. And that's how it ends. Well... I, I'm i not used to summing it up as much as I have, honestly, but, well, that that's that. Yeah, that's a pretty good summation. I mean, at the very end... Uh, they do have a little a little tail scene on the end of this where you kind of have a mirror of the earlier scene with the uh, coroner guy where the guy is saying, you know, the, the death of the woman. He's saying, uh, you know, what was the, the death? Oh, and he actually knows what the death is. It was like, it's by an ape. So is, it, so is he talking about Miracle's body? Um, yeah, because he says death by ape. Yes. And, and that's the end of the movie. 
Uh, we got the credit, you know, credits roll. Uh, but Eric, we hardly knew ye. I'm sorry that you're not the as iconic uh, an ape as Mighty Joe Young in King Kong. But you will live in our hearts for your fat stomach. Oh boy. Well, see, look, it's 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 not his fault that the bananas that he was probably getting, he wasn't, he probably, how do we even know that Miracle was feeding him bananas? He could have been feeding him that fatty French food because French food has a lot of pastries in it, a lot of butter and, you know, oils and You and know stuff. The, ben, that sweet old banana butter? Oh, b- bana- banana butter blintzes? No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, uh, escargot. I don't know what they. I don't know. I don't know what they're feeding. But whatever they're feeding this this a- this ape, he's he's rather rotund. But you know, the guy inside is not. I mean, uh, Charles Gamora. He's like five foot. So he was just kind of. He was able to squat, and that's kind of uh, his claim to fame with with playing guys in gorilla suits. Yeah, but he feeds on the livers of his enemies. Oh, disgusting. Yeah, no, he's, um, he's Prometheus. Oh, he's Prometheus. Call back to Frankenstein. Uh, Eric is also saying that, but he's also Prometheus. Or rather, Prometheus is Raven. That, that, therefore, Eric is Santa, and he's also Zeus. That is, one, that's, that's more well, accurate. One more thing. There was a movie that came out later after this, and they wanted Bella Lugosi to be at the theater out front, I guess because they needed, like, this is a horror movie, so I guess we've got to have him out there, even though there's no Dracula movie play right now. He wanted, they wanted him in his suit, and he heard that they were going to have a, uh, a guy there in a gorilla costume, and Bela Lugosi wanted to have nothing to do with it. The, re- <laughs> the reason why, I will tell you this, the reason why is for some reason, Bela Lugosi has, has this thing with gorillas, because and we'll see this going forward. I mean, he's got Murders in the Room Morgue. He's got, there's a movie called The Ape Man, I think, where he where Bela Lugosi is like, has, is turning to a monkey himself. Uh, yeah, go figure. And there's one, there's one called, I kid you not, Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. I'm telling you, that's... Just the, why? That, that, that's like, uh, uh, apparently, um, in Portugal... There was a uh, a lost movie, and it's called Batman versus Dracula. Obviously, it does not have uh, Bela Lugosi. It probably has his uh, the Spanish version Dracula, but uh, who's to tell? That's it, it's Portugal. Portugal is not Mexico. But yeah, Spain. you know, but, yeah, por- Portugal is just gonna is Portugal gonna do what Portugal gonna do? Yeah, but many people would have liked to have seen it, especially since it's probably like. One of the earliest spoof movies ever. There was a um, there was a time when I think there was actually an animated uh, film called Batman versus Dracula, and it was based upon a reboot of the Batman cartoon that they did, and it had a very slightly dif- different style, um, and it, it was better than it had any right to be. But the Batman versus Dracula story was kind of it was okay, but yeah, that that actually did show up in the comic books and in animated form. But it's not. That's probably not the same movie as what you're talking about. They probably probably was a bootleg kind of thing as things go. This episode has been fun. This episode has been fun, and, and the thing is, though, we are going to see some more films with Bela Lugosi going forward, as well as Boris Karloff, you know, uh, for quite a while. Um, and we're going to see some more about apes. Both. Uh, this is just the way the the 40s, you know, kind of uh, turned out. Um, lots of lots of monkey movies, I, and 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 Bela Lugosi was in probably more of those movies than he would have liked to admit, but uh, he just kept returning to monkey. Yep. So, what do you think that Eric would be singing when he's falling into the water? 
Oh, is this a joke, or do you really want my honest opinion? Which Christmas song would it be singing? Oh, no. Oh. I I, I don't think I'm going to guess. I'm going to let you just have the last word. It would obviously be... <laughs> you better have a good one. You I, have... <laughs> I, that's why I asked you. I can't think of it. No, I just, I kept thinking when you were saying Santa Claus, like, here comes Eric Claus, here comes Eric Claus, right down Eric Claus Lane. I don't know. May, maybe, um, Grandma got run over by a ape man. <laughs> Janos got run over by a ape man. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, there were some murders. He knows when you're eating bananas. There were... <laughs> he knows when you are not. But Car- <laughs> even if you eat banana pudding, he still appreciates the thought. Carl Limley thought Sidney Fox was hot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And that that didn't work out for both of them, now did it? But anyway, uh, I'm glad to see that... that you know, some more performances from Bella Lugosi going forward. Uh, the one I'm looking forward to most is Igor uh, in the uh, Frankenstein movies. You might say that you're Igor to uh, see that. Okay. Um. So, okay, our our next movie <laughs> is going to be uh, The Monster Walks. Yes. It should be. I've never heard of it. It definitely sounds like one of those classic you know, cheesy movies where it's... I think it's more on the line of cheese than it is the line of classic. And I think that, um, I have this feeling that... Thing is, is it Canabare or Blue? No Uh, one will know. Uh, it's, it's Gruyere. Gruyere. Uh, it, it, it kind of seems like Monterey Jack to me. Gorgonzola. But what is going to be, uh, Monterey Jack squat, um... (laughs) It's going to be this podcast. Our podcast is going to be Monterey Jack Squat. That's what we um, need to say. In terms of length, I guess. Yeah, no, this will be fine. So uh, we'll see you all on our next episode uh, when we, uh, I hate to say it, we got another monkey. I'm so sorry, William. Another monkey. All right, have a good one. Don't forget to open your third eye telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our twitter at cinematicfanta1 exchange all of your money into republic credits and donate at our patreon page at patreon.com slash Cinefan Podcast. Ending transmission now.